On this episode of Serverless Chats, I finish my conversation with Ori Sagel about serverless application security. This is Serverless Chats, episode number 24. So let's move on to number four. So number four is overprivileged function permissions and roles. This is one of my favorites because I feel like this is um, uh, this is something that people do wrong all the time um, because it's just easier to put a star permission. Yeah, and uh, I, I keep this is something that uh, this this is an issue that uh, I've been you know thinking about a lot of why why is it like from a psychological perspective that developers. Uh, put a, a wild card uh, there. So obviously, uh, we've talked about the very granular and very powerful IAM model um, in public clouds, uh, and that's very relevant to serverless. Uh, you break your app down into functions. You assign each function the you need to assign to each function the permissions that it actually needs in order to to do its task, and n- nothing more than that. And that's the point here. How do you make sure that? Uh, if somebody exploits the function, if somebody finds a problem in the function, they are not able to manipulate uh, that function to um, maybe call it, you know, do some lateral movement inside your cloud account, move to other uh, uh, data stores, etc. cetera. Uh, so that's, that's very important. And um, we see that uh, developers have a tendency, and this is one of the most common issues, uh, to, to just use a wildcard and, and allow the function uh, to perform all of the actions on certain resources. Uh, and that, as I said, this is something that, like, I've asked a lot of developers, why are they doing that? And I'm hearing different answers. Uh, some some are just lazy. Uh, you know, I, I have to admit, I do that from time to time as well. Uh, it's much easier than actually having to go to the documentation and figure out the, the name, the exact name of the permission that I need. Uh, the other uh, set of developers talked about future-proofing the function. So they said, okay, now the function only puts items into a database but maybe next week I'll need it to read, uh, mm-hmm. which by the way, violates the, the principle of uh, single responsibility, but, but let's put that aside. Uh, and so they j- just put uh, maybe uh, crude permissions or they put everything. Um, and then there are those who just either don't care or don't know or are not aware that this is a problem. Um, so those are the three types of developers or answers that I've heard. Uh, but this is by far the most common, and I've seen frameworks that automatically generates um, wildcards as mm-hmm. well, uh, which is also bad. And I've seen some bad examples uh, as well in tutorials, which is the worst thing yes. that can happen uh, because we're trying to teach people how to write to go the uh, to go the other way. Yeah. Well, so the example exactly. the example that uh, that the document uses is the DynamoDB um, star permission, and I-, I love this example because. Uh, you would think, okay, put items, write items, um, or sorry, put items, get items, query items, um, delete items. Like that seems like, oh, that's what I'm giving it permission to. But but no, when you give DynamoDB star permission, you're giving it the ability to <laughs> delete tables or change uh, provision capacity, or you know, I mean, you can do a lot of a um, uh, lot of really bad stuff there. And obviously, this is all predicated on someone actually being able to get into your function. But that is something that um, you know is possible. In you know, again, it's it's limited in how you can do that, but it certainly is possible. Uh, we'll get into that more. Um, th- just one point about about 
this the the permissions per function though one of the things that i like to do is um, I try to give each function the permissions that I think it needs. Um, then I publish it to the cloud and I try to run it. And then, you know, actually AWS does a great job of giving you the error saying, you know, this this function doesn't have Dynamo colon put item permission or something like that. So you're basically using debug printing to get uh, to figure out the right permissions, right? <laughs> it works. It's not nice. Yeah, hey, it works. But there is, uh, but they do have a service I think called Access Advisor. I think yeah. Uh, and I think Google came out with a much better uh, automated solution for that. Uh, eventually, I think the access advisor would look at historical logs for, I don't know, a few days or a few executions and will tell you, it looks like you have too much permissions. Yes. Uh, you should probably yeah. reduce them. Uh, but this is something that uh, we've done uh, in PureSec with the, there's the, the open source um, um, list privilege plugin that we wrote uh, that you can use for serverless, which basically statically analyzes uh, your code extracts all the API calls and then maps them to the uh, list required privileges and, and will actually generate a list privilege role for you. Um, so um, this is, and we'll talk about the future, but I think this is something that will eventually get, uh, will have to be solved somehow yeah. or uh, cloud providers will probably produce better uh, tools around that. Well, and some frameworks, because I think some frameworks are doing um, are doing work with guardrails and stuff like that too that um, that help a little bit, but it's it's not quite there yet. Mostly around asterisks, like around wildcards. Yeah, true. But actually like... What you actually need, yeah. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Um, all right, so let's move on to number five. And this is probably tied um, to number 10 in a way. So number five is in inadequate function monitoring and logging. Um, and I think this extends a little bit to number 10, which is improper exception handling and verbose error messaging, whereas logging is a good thing, the but, can be, but, can be, but can be a bad thing, right? You know, so, uh, so let's yeah. talk about inadequate function monitoring and logging first. Well, uh, I think this one actually, I think uh, looking at this uh, issue now in hindsight and seeing that there's a, uh, a you know there's an entire industry of serverless right. monitoring vendors and solutions I think uh, we already see that uh, this is a real need uh, and it, it becomes more critical for security uh, I'm not talking about performance and, and tracing and things like that but uh, being able to properly monitor, uh, your functions to log the right thing uh, is is critical. And if if you look at this, uh, for example, if somebody runs a SQL injection attack um, and triggers some I don't know exceptions, where would you even see that? Like I'm not even sure you would see that in in the you know the default logging facilities that the cloud providers give mm -hmm. you. Uh, so it it goes back to the fact that developers have to worry about application security. Uh, specific logging um, and, and yeah so you know you have to write more uh, into CloudWatch uh, and uh, if it's related to IAM and things like that uh, then you would see that in CloudTrail I'm talking AWS of course uh, but um, yeah uh, without that you're pretty much blind to the attacks that you're experiencing um, I, I yeah. yeah, and then you have the whole issue too, is if it doesn't necessarily trigger an error and you're not capturing what the original input was, 
you know, then how do you inspect that input? If you're not logging that input somewhere, it's not just getting logged automatically for you, um, like in access logs. I mean, obviously, if you have um, uh, if you have AWS or sorry, if you have API gateway set up, you can enable access logs and you can see some of that. Um, but even the post data and some of these other things are are definitely hard to hard to see. So I that was never available. Uh, by the way, if you looked at historically at like Apache logs, never yeah. logged the, the the post bodies. Right. You know, and for a good reason. And and, and I think from a, like a PCI and, and data privacy perspective, you don't want them logged all the time. Maybe just when there's a security exception. Yeah. Uh, it's the same for for serverless. I haven't seen. I don't think you can actually enable full event logging, end to end. I think some of the observability you. tools let you though. Um, yeah, which yeah. can be somewhat dangerous if uh, if it contains information that it probably shouldn't contain. Um, but anyways, so yeah, I I, yeah. I totally agree though. I I think that um, you know that logging is a uh, is important to make sure that you have visibility uh, and and certainly the the monitoring tools are helping with this. Um, all right, okay, so let's move on to um, the next one because this one I think is probably the biggest security hole in any type of application. This is not specific to serverless, but certainly something that um, if, if, if it was taken advantage of, and again, this may be theoretical, um, it, could, it could cause a, a pretty bad or a pretty dangerous, uh, had dangerous side effects. And that is number six, which is the insecure third-party dependencies. Yeah, so I, I think I read somewhere recently that third-party libraries uh, make up I think 75% of the code we write today is actually coming from external third-party, non-trustworthy resources. Uh, and that's, as, as you said, that's really not specific to serverless. And this is also something that I mention uh, when I give my serverless security talk is this one is not specific to serverless. Uh, I think the, the only difference that I like thinking about when talking about the third-party dependencies is how do you monitor uh, those dependencies, uh, because you you don't see them running. It's not running in your environment. If for some reason it's leaking data or sending your credentials or your API keys to some third party, uh, you have no perimeter to block that from happening, and you can you can't really monitor their behavior. You have to somehow run them locally and monitor their behavior. Uh, so the problem is, uh, I, I think it becomes a bit harder to locate that you have uh, you know, infected third-party uh, dependencies. Um, I think another maybe thing to think about is that uh, in serverless, you always, I, like you reduce the amount of uh, code in a function uh, to minimum, as we talked about yep. uh, the, the principle of single responsibility. And so a lot of the time you rely a lot on third-party uh, libraries to do some of the heavy lifting for you. Uh, I think you can't even write a serverless function without at least one import. You have to import JSON, for example, if you're talking mm -hmm. about uh, Python, right? So you you start you start by already importing a library, and then um, frankly, nobody's monitoring these functions. So these open like I I have a severe trust issues with open source. Uh, projects. Uh, nobody's uh, keeping keeping us safe. And we're if we're talking about all the the SNICs uh, and the white sources, they are very good in listing known vulnerabilities mm -hmm. like CVE uh, type vulnerabilities. But um, I think 
all of the all of the malicious packages or the malicious code that was injected into open source packages lately was only discovered uh, I think I did I did some research uh, more than three weeks after it was injected yeah. uh, so there's nobody really monitoring this and there's no real solution to tell you that somebody injected malicious code in there and and that's an issue uh, again not a serverless issue but it becomes worse when you have to sort of uh, uh, you don't have any tools to to sort of control the environment. Yeah, and I think I think this is the when we need to talk about remote code execution. Um, you know, people can't just hack into your function, right? That's not a thing. It's not like a like a traditional server where you're going to see that happen. But um, remote code execution, I would say, third party dependencies is the is probably the number one um, overwhelming possibility or or or, uh, or exploit where people could use remote code execution. And if you look at a lot of tools that people are writing, again, like you said, this applies to every every type of, of service you're building. Um, but certainly you look at a lot of the, uh, you know, tools that have been built, a lot of open source tools, they have, you know, they run SQL queries, right? So how would you even detect that? Like, well, this runs a SQL query. Maybe it's supposed to be running that delete. Maybe it's supposed to be running that select star, or maybe it's supposed to, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, do a, you know, a, a scan on the DynamoDB table. Like you, you'd have to really understand what each one of these dependencies is doing to know whether or not it's, uh, it's doing something it's not supposed to. And obviously posting that data to uh, some third-party service uh, is probably the the easiest way for these RCEs to uh, to to get the data somewhere else, um, and that's something that again the cloud provider does provide some mitigation to. You know, if you're running in a VPC, then you can disable outgoing HTTP calls. I know PureSec did some work around that as well. Um, you know, and that's part of uh, part of the system there. But yeah, but I just think this is one of those things where people say, oh, there's a service that does this. Uh, or a plugin that does this, I'm just going to use that. And what you don't realize is that you may be installing hundreds of dependencies, um, mm. each one of those maintained by different people of questionable, um, you know, questionable intent, um, you know, or, or uh, of questionable reputation. And we just do it because it's easy. Uh, but uh, but yeah, this one scares me the most. Um, and I, I think it's I think it's a, a very good practice for you to be very conscious of the uh, uh, of the third-party dependencies you use, and if, if you remember, I think we talked earlier about the my wife's um, <laughs> WordPress right, yes. uh, blog. Uh, then WordPress itself, I think the amount of vulnerabilities found in WordPress uh, is rather low, but it's usually those third-party plugins that you add that that you know. God knows who wrote them mm -hmm. and what what what's their background in application security and, and so the majority of holes in CVEs and the exploits you see around uh, WordPress is because of those plugins and I think the same applies to um, application security for modern applications and for serverless in particular where you can write the perfect application and do threat modeling and pen testing and everything properly and input validation but then you're using some kind of, uh, I don't know, deserialization uh, package, which uh, includes a remote code execution. <laughs> and that's it. That That's the weakest link uh, in the in, in the chain. Right. Um, so yeah. And you may have followed, followed every other best practice and it doesn't matter, um, which I think ties exactly. into this idea, which third party, um, besides the third party, just being able to, uh, you know, somehow, somehow execute um, a little bit, a snippet of code. Um, part of this is, again, for the purpose of maybe stealing application secrets, um, uh, you know, the tokens and the session tokens and things like that. Um, so number seven is this idea of insecure application secret storage. So what's that about? 
Oh, um, well, all applications, uh, most applications, uh, use secrets, uh, API keys, uh, passwords, um, I know, whatever. Um, and it really, well, the security of those secrets really depends on where you store them. Um, and I think we've seen, again, and this started because of some bad examples in tutorials where people stored, obviously, secrets hard-coded, uh, which is the worst, and then they push uh, the project to Git or something, <laughs> and it leaks out. Uh, and then later on, people um, used environment variables because that was the best or maybe the only way to store uh, in the sta stateless uh, world of serverless applications, and people store them there, and those have a tendency to leak uh, pretty quickly. Um, and I have a good example of that in, in the presentation that they usually give. Uh, and... At some point, I think uh, uh, cloud providers decided to solve this. Uh, and now they all, I think, offer like secrets uh, storage yep. um, uh, that you should be using, uh, you know, with some KMS, uh, some, some key management and you encrypt the secrets. Uh, that's all terrific. And you should be using that. Keep in mind, though, that um, if somebody manages to run code, if, if it, if you end up with an RCE with a remote code execution, then those secrets are not secrets anymore. So that that problem hasn't been solved yet. Right. Um, so if somebody can um, run code on behalf of your function through some RCE, uh, then it's game over. I haven't seen a, a solution yet for that. But I do think that environment variables are <clears throat> are the more dangerous thing a more dangerous place to store those because uh, it's very easy for um, a third-party service to just look at the environment variables. That's a standard place to look. Um, if you did store them, if you used, you know, uh, sort of like accessing them at runtime, um, even caching them in the function, um, but pulling them and storing them in global variables that weren't necessarily accessible through um, uh, through the environment variables, that the attacker would have to do something a little bit more um, tricky, like they'd actually have to read, do some static file analysis to find where these variables are being used and then try to load them that way. Um, you know, so it might be a little bit more, uh, it might be harder if, uh, if they're not stored in environment variables anyways. I, I would love to see uh, uh, cloud vendors make use of uh, technologies, um, you know, like the Intel uh, SGX, uh, you know, um, secure enclaves technologies uh, where um, you can store things in a very secure manner. Uh, and even if somebody has remote code execution, they won't be able uh, to read them. Mm -hmm. uh, we're, we're not there yet, uh, but uh, but this thing, the technologies uh, exist. I think at some point uh, they will make use of it. Um, yeah, I think we we sort of we even said too much on on this. Uh, yeah, probably sim simple. Um, but speaking topic. of speaking of that secure, uh, you know, securing or having the cloud vendor do more, uh, Microsoft Azure Functions actually just um, uh, released something where now their secrets are available, but you don't have to do any code or have to add any code to access them. So I don't know what that's all about. I, I got to look more into it, but that seems like an interesting sort of approach. Um, all right, so anyway, so let's move on. Uh, SAS 8, this is the denial of service and financial exhaustion, uh, financial resource exhaustion. So uh, I don't think we need to spend time talking about denial of service specifically. Yeah. I think there is some interesting aspect to denial of service, especially in serverless uh, environments um, where you can cause that financial resource exhaustion. Um, so if you find a function that uh, with some input will work harder and longer, 
you can uh, definitely inflict some financial pain uh, if you if you'd like. Uh, I think on the denial of service side, the only thing I want to say is that um, um, the auto scaling and the whatever infinite scaling or whatever people uh, claim serverless uh, platforms to be, uh, you have to to pay attention to that. Uh, you have to design uh, with scalability in mind. It's not all for free. Yes. Uh, so you have to think about how you design the application, use the right services, think about uh, what is invoking what, what are your timeouts, how your application is going to handle these things. Um, just because you're using Kinesis in a serverless function doesn't mean that uh, you're infinitely scalable. Right. Uh, yeah. As an example. And certainly flooding queues and, and things like that are, are other ways to um, to 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 raise the costs uh, or to slow down the execution of, of other important messages. Um, and that's things too where just good practices there are validating the shape of the data when it's coming in through something like API Gateway or um, you know making sure that you're you're not uh, you're not flooding certain downstream services. But uh, I agree. That's that's something that I think is 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 well written about. So there's there's lots of lots of ways to find mm -hmm. information there. Um, probably the same thing here with um, SAS nine, which is serverless function execution flow manipulation. Um, so thoughts on that? Um, I think we changed the name later on to like serverless business logic manipulation. You did, yes, serverless uh, business logic but, but, manipulation. But same same thing. Uh, I think. Again, uh, this is not specific to serverless, but rather uh, to more service-oriented architecture, web services, um, you know, service meshes, etc. Uh, where again, we're back to the fact that we broke the application down into many, many, many uh, tiny laser-focused services, and now they all interact with each other. And who knows if something is even enforcing the flow that you expect it um, um, to, to do. Um, and I, you know, if you have, think about an application where you have an API request coming in, triggering a Lambda function that then puts some data inside a bucket and that triggers an event that triggers another function that stores something inside, I don't know, a queue, which eventually triggers another function. Um, at this, at least from what I know, there is no way for me to enforce the fact, uh, the order, uh, mm -hmm. the order in which the, unless I'm using step functions, and then it's a whole different uh, game. But if I if I'm building it the classic traditional uh, way, if you can say traditional on service <laughs> applications, but if I build it the normal way, nothing is is actually. Uh, promising me that the service is actually uh, the services are invoked in the right order, and that one service can, um, um, in, with a hundred percent certainty, say that whoever invoked it was in fact the service that it uh, it, it expects to uh, be invoked. So, as an example, you have the API triggering the Lambda function stores in a in an S3 bucket, and then that triggers the the rest of the chain. Uh, what if some insider or a developer uh, stores or throws a file into that bucket and starts the chain from the middle? Yeah. Um, is something even validating that? Uh, and, and the default when you create those applications with some framework or SAM or serverless framework, uh, it's not that the default is deny all and then you sort of uh, loosen up the security permissions a bit. So 
anyone with execution permissions can run any function in the account and anyone with access to the bucket can drop files into the bucket. Um, and, and so you have to think about that. And I, I would, I think that in the future, at least, um, this will change and you will be able to create applications that the default is deny everything. And then you sort of say, okay, to this bucket, only that function can write and anyone else uh, is, is, is blocked. Uh, and that's how I would want to see, uh, things, um, evolve. Yeah, yeah, totally agree. All right, let's move on to number 10. So this is improper um, improper exception handling and verbose error messaging. And, and the reason why I compared this to number five, which was the inadequate logging, is because you have a tendency to log too little, but then you also potentially have a, the, uh, the, the tendency to log too much sometimes. Yeah, just like how you debug um, IAM permissions. <laughs> um, <laughs> We all do that. Uh, so we all do print, uh, you know, uh, debug prints, and then sometimes we leave them there. Uh, sometimes we don't catch the exceptions properly, and that spills out. Uh, just looking, you know, things like Shodan or Google, you can you can you know do Google dorking and find a lot of very juicy uh, verbose error messages. And in serverless, I think because uh, at least at the time of writing of the document, the um, the debugging capabilities that you had uh, weren't on par with like traditional applications where you write in an IDE and you can debug line by line. Uh, there is a tendency of, uh, that we see uh, that people write verbose error messages and then leave them there. So that's that's how this is related to serverless specifically. But yeah, th this is a a classical error in any type of application. Absolutely. Um, all right. So this this is actually somewhat specific, more more towards cloud. Um, I guess cloud native. And this is number eleven. This is legacy slash unused functions and cloud resources. Yeah, that's a that's a good one actually. Uh, just uh, I think a couple of days ago, I was in, um, I was giving a presentation at the London Serverless Conference. Mm -hmm. Um, and we have, we had a booth, uh, and I was showing the, the serverless radar, uh, that we have. And somebody asked me what's those, you know, there's more than a few, I think a few dozens of functions just lying there on the radar, not related to the demo I'm giving. And I said, okay, <laughs> uh, I wrote these functions. I left them. Uh, some of them are two years old. Mm -hmm. uh, like I, I, I'm not even deleting them. Like, why would I, uh, delete old functions? And they're just lying there with the IAM <laughs> permissions, uh, waiting for somebody to access them and invoke them and and ex exploit them. So um, I, I'm not like I saw. I think somebody published uh, like a serverless pruning plugin for serverless framework lately. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So I think uh, in any cloud account that I have, there are hundreds of functions just lying there. Um, and I, I think last I checked was in most of my accounts, I have like 600 roles uh, that exist <laughs> as well. Uh, you know, Lambda execution role one, Lambda execution role two, Lambda <laughs> role three, and, um, and nobody's pruning them. And until you hit the limit, uh, the account limit, and then it's, you know, it will take you a few years before you start uh, getting rid of unused uh, resources. And there's really no reason for them to stay there. Uh, again, not serverless specific. Serverless does bring uh, uh, a new 
set of resources that uh, that you can leave behind. Uh, so mostly functions. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I, I, I think that's one of those things. I, I'm the same exact way. I go in and I look and I'm like, well, I don't even know what this function does. I don't know how it got published. I probably deleted the the folder that, that actually published, you know, the, the actual app locally that published it somehow. And I'm like, I don't even know. Had... How, do, how, do, how do you go and then trace everything like maybe it wasn't even published through cloud formation so now you you know because it was like a test you were doing or something so yeah that, that that is definitely something you want to clean up it took me i think three days uh to find a function i had a function that scans uh the entire set of uh, s3 buckets that we have publicly open mm -hmm. and sends me an email every day um that was like an experiment uh, that, that i've done i think more than a year ago and i couldn't figure out in even what account, what region, right. and what's the name of the function that was sending me the emails. Uh, and it, it took us, uh, I think, three days or even more to eventually manage to find where it is yes, yeah. by looking at the email headers, figuring out which AWS uh, zone, uh, not zone, but uh, region, region it is. <laughs> yes, and then, and as you said, I, I completely deleted the project. So it's not like I had something to sort of delete the, uh, the serverless uh, framework project that I was using. Yeah, that's crazy. Um, all right, so the next one is uh, SAS 12. That's cross-execution data persistency. And I think this is a really important one. I mean, obviously, in traditional applications, um, we have uh, you know global variables that can get manipulated and are reused uh, across each execution. Um, but with serverless, we think about you know we, we're we're used to this single execution model, um, but we do save data outside of the handler, which gives us the ability to reuse that on warm uh, on warm invocations. So what's the what's the issue with that? I think you explained it very well. Um, people don't think about the fact that the same container is being reused. So it's frozen between executions, but then it's sort of revived uh, or defrosted or whatever they call it. Um, and the environment stays the same. So if you had anything stored in like slash temp, which is basically the only place where you can store things locally, uh, or if you're storing things in environment variables, like session variables, um, it stays there. Uh, and uh, in fact, if the next execution uh, belongs to a different user who's malicious. Um, if, again, you screwed up in one of the other top 12, the other 11 uh, of the top 12, there is a chance that uh, this information uh, will leak. And I don't think there is a way for you to automatically flush everything between executions. You have to sort of code that. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, delete or destroy uh, what's in slash TMP. Um, throw away environment variables um, and start from fresh uh, if you want. Um, again, that really depends on the application itself, but this is something that you have to keep in mind that uh, uh, stays there. And we've seen a few examples, um, you know, some demos uh, where people store stuff in slash TMP and then somebody comes in and grabs that uh, data. Um, yeah, it's just something to keep in mind that, uh, and actually this goes back to the theoretical versus practical. This is a classic one where we haven't seen this getting exploited. This is purely theoretical. We added it to the 2019 uh, because we believe that this is something, this is almost obvious that this is some kind of vector that attackers uh, will target because that's pretty much what's left behind uh, between executions. Um, 
So it only makes sense that somebody will eventually use that uh, somehow. Yeah, and actually, I mean, not even putting this in the security context, but just putting it in um, sort of the the things you can do to step on your own toes from a security standpoint is if you are uh, if you're not fully aware of what data you're saving in global variables from execution to execution, it's very possible that user A accesses this function and then user B gets that thawed version of the function again um, on the next invocation. And if you've saved data about that user um, or you know some other information about that user that you might then share back, um, you know maybe your appending rows to a uh, to an array or something like that. It, it, so these are things you can certainly uh, you know uh, basically make your own application insecure by um, by by just by just not knowing that that this exists. So um, I do think it's important. Yes, it's theoretical maybe from an exploitation standpoint, but certainly possible to do on your own if you're if you're not uh, <laughs> if you're not paying attention. Um, all right, so yeah. I. I I think that's a, I mean, we went through, I think, in more depth than I was planning to. So we've been uh, talking for quite some time. Um, and, and I hope that what people are taking away from this is just, again, not all of the stuff is specific to serverless, but it certainly is things just to sort of pay attention to. So I want to wrap up, though, you know, before I let you go, um, uh, I, I do want to talk about the future of serverless security, because I, I do see things changing quite a bit um, uh, just from you know two years ago or a year ago in terms of how people are starting to address these things um, and 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 one of the things that I read recently was you know this was a study I don't know how uh, you know how valid it was but something like 63% of containers so containers not serverless but containers run for less than 10 minutes and then they go away so I, I think this nature of ephemeral compute even if it's containers and it's Kubernetes or Fargate or or any of these other um, you know any of these other orchestration management systems that the the time the containers are actually running to the time they get recycled is very very low. So ephemeral compute seems like whether you're using containers or serverless is the future of the cloud. Um, so just what are your thoughts on 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 that and what does security look like next year or in the future? Interesting. Um, wow. Um... Sorry, I packed a lot I in there. A lot of different. <laughs> no, that's good. That's good. It's it's a very uh, interesting topic. Let's start with with containers and ephemeral and serverless and and all of that. So containers is a, a container uh, is is a technology of how you package applications, uh, existing applications that we had, you know, previous technologies like web apps and databases, you just package them as containers. So uh, it's easier for you to uh, redeploy them. Um, and so you can think of containers as a technology that actually came from uh, maybe the operations side uh, of the world and DevOps. That's a technology that comes to help them uh, to more easily deploy and maintain um, um, infrastructure. Uh, I think on the other hand, serverless is something that uh, is more geared toward developers. It's a technology or an approach or a platform, whatever you want to call it, uh, that comes to help developers with getting rid of the need to actually um, maintain infrastructure and rely on IT teams uh, and it's much easier to now deploy applications and go into like a very fast, agile CI/CD deployment cycles where you push uh, changes. You don't have to ask anyone. There is no gate. Nothing is slowing you down here. Um, so 
I don't think that, you know, looking at the fact that most containers run for less than 10 minutes means that we should all be uh, migrating to serverless. That's not the right reason to do that. Um, you might still uh, run containers and feel comfortable with the way you package existing technologies, web servers, databases, etc. You might want to consider using services like Fargate, where you don't own the infrastructure and you don't care about the underlying container orchestration. Uh, but but the packaging is still uh, more comfortable or easy for your teams to do through containers. Uh, so again, the running time, I don't think that's the, the right reason to, to go serverless. Um, again, if you have containers, they run for... 30 seconds and then you destroy them, maybe it's still easier for your, you need some things that require you to package them as a container. Right. Um, so that's just a comment about, you know, containers versus serverless and which one is going to take over the world. And that's a whole thing. Um, uh, about security and where this is all going, if I remember correctly, um, you know, uh, the discussion <laughs> my, con my convoluted question <laughs> yes uh, just I, I mean with the, the ephemeral compute nature of this where uh, how does security apply differently to ephemeral compute versus what we've traditionally seen with long-running resources um yeah that's a discussion i actually don't like to do i remember in the early days of serverless people talked about the fact that it's ephemeral it's not staying there you can't infect it uh, malware is irrelevant all of those uh claims uh you can't store anything there I think we've already demonstrated that that's not the case. Uh, you can infect serverless functions. Uh, again, it depends on the vulnerability and the way you exploit it. The fact that it's ephemeral, uh, you can overcome that by reinfecting. So let's say you have a remote code execution through an HTTP API call. I can reinfect the function. It might not be the exact same instance, but again, it depends on what I'm trying to achieve. Uh, on the other end, uh, the likelihood of me uh, using that to sort of uh, get into your network, that's pretty much done. So, uh, yeah, the, the fact that, that those platforms are ephemeral, I think, have its has its benefits and its drawbacks, uh, both from the attacker and the, the defender uh, side. Um, I At this point, I don't think uh, this is uh, something that's worth um, paying too much attention on. Um, but I just, I'm, I'm curious about the visibility of it, right? So, I mean, I think that, you know, especially in being able to inspect log files and some of that other stuff, um, just the, the ephemeral nature of some of these uh, compute models now just seems like it's probably harder for the defender, um, you know, kind of to put all this information together and, uh, and make sure that their application is secure. Right. Actually... There's two sides to this uh, to this issue. If you think about it, um, if you do logging properly, you're probably logging to CloudWatch, uh, which means that if you did IAM permissions properly, uh, the function will be able to write, but uh, it won't be able to read uh, from the logs. And the ability of an attacker to destroy logs and cover their traces uh, becomes uh, less probable. Something that, again, if you found a remote code execution uh, in a in a web app, 
you can probably destroy the logs and nobody will be able to to trace uh you know uh, the actual attack event back uh so in that sense i think if you follow the uh um you, you follow the, the the book you know <laughs> if you write the logs properly you do iam properly um you're much better off Right. Now, do you think this is something that cloud providers um, are going to put more emphasis on? I mean, this idea of application security, it seems a little bit outside their purview, but when they're managing so much of the uh, of the underlying resources, um, it seems like they would want to, to do more in this space. The simple answer is uh, no. I think cloud providers are now trying to get us all hooked on their cloud platforms, and so they will build more features that are uh, related to enabling more use cases. Um, obviously, they are doing some efforts around security, but that's um, just enough so that people won't be scared of adopting these new technologies. Uh, and I think it's it's correct to leave the security aspects to uh, the security vendors who are you know experts in this uh, field and have the right personnel and experience. Um, and it, it, it contributes to an ecosystem of vendors. You want your cloud to have a nice, rich ecosystems of, of vendors and choices for customers uh, to use different tools. Uh, so right. I think at the end of the day, they will do the minimum required, um, at least in the next few years. Um, and it, it, it's it's correct. They they now need to put an uh, an emphasis on how to get everybody on board. Uh, we want to see people adopt these uh, cloud native environments, uh, and so more tooling, more debugging, more tracing, more logging, uh, things like that, um, uh, and not pay attention, you know, to runtime protection and things like that. Where obviously there are vendors that already have experience with that. Sure. All right. So I've got one more question for you, and this is this is around the uh, containers versus serverless debate, and it's not really about the debate because I think both of those things live in harmony and and will continue to be used. Um, and maybe I'm harping too much on the ephemeral uh, aspect of this, but um, in terms of container security and um, serverless security, I mean serverless security essentially is just going to be a container running somewhere that you probably don't know about, right? And maybe it's Firecracker or something a little bit different, or um, some of the the, the more uh, lightweight ones like the the V8 and the Cloudflare workers and some of that stuff. But um, is there going to be a big difference between how container security and serverless security um, are handled, or is eventually do you think there's going to be sort of a uh, a merger of the of the two paradigms? Interesting. Um, hmm. Okay, so first of all, regarding containers, um, I see in general two types of platforms. Uh, obviously, the ones you manage yourself, like the traditional containers, uh, and the ones that are fully managed, more like Fargates, where you run them in a cloud-native environment. Actually, by the way, I don't consider containers to be cloud-native. I have no idea what started this whole uh, I know who coupled these. I think serverless is cloud native. Uh, containers, you know, if I run the container on my own host inside my uh, my network, it's not cloud native in any way. So, um, <laughs> but but let's. I think serverless and the Firegates of the world and the fully managed cloud uh, public cloud container services. Those are more uh, similar in the sense that the majority of the backend heavy lifting work is being done by consuming 
uh, cloud provider services like you know buckets and databases and etc. Uh, and there the security uh, is different. First of all, obviously we talked about that, but you can't uh, deploy anything uh, you know, other than a serverless security platform or whatever, cloud native security platform. Uh, you can't deploy agents and things like that, and you don't control the network. But more importantly, uh, the network sort of disappears in those cases. Uh, you no longer deal with network like uh, layer three, four kind of networking. Uh, and so firewalls and things like that are less relevant and everything is done through APIs. So these cloud services, they offer you APIs and then the control over who can access those APIs uh, is being dictated by IAM permissions. And so that's why people say, and I love that, that IAM is the new perimeter. Uh, and the Basically, the network layer security is pretty much dead. Yes, there are people who run in VPCs and things like that, but that's not the case. And if you look at the other types of containers, uh, like the traditional, where you package things as containers and you run the container, you still control the, control the network and you can put a web application firewall and you can put a, a next-gen firewall there and you can do network access controls and things like that. That's a completely different story. Um, right. So... Yes, uh, some runtime behavioral protection logic can probably apply to both, but the way you deploy it, the way you do it is completely different. Awesome. Well, there is certainly, um, I think that certainly demonstrates why you are a senior distinguished research engineer um, <laughs> with serverless. Because, uh, no, I mean, honestly, uh, Ori, thank you so much for having this conversation with me. Um, I, I think just, I, 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 again, not to go back to the FUD thing, but I, I, I think this information is super important to get out. Um, should it scare people? No, I think it should just make people aware um, that, that, you know, serverless or security doesn't go away with serverless, right? Like it's not magical, like it out of the box, it's way more secure than probably anything that more traditional that you would launch. But, um, but there are still things you have to pay attention to. And, and, and many of these things now fall on the developer. Um, and you don't have the benefits of, of some of those, uh, you know, higher level ops, you know, DevOps people uh, taking care of some of that that protection and security for you or the, the SecOps people. So um, so anyways, again, thank you so much for 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 being here. Um, if people want to find out more about you um, and actually more about Palo Alto Networks, uh, the, the Prisma brand there, how, how do they do that? Um, well, you can just type Prisma security or Palo Alto Prisma in Google and you get to that page. Um, you know, I don't want to do any pitch here. Um, so feel free. Just go into the website and see uh, what we offer. It's like an end to end cloud security platform. Um, I, I do want to say one more comment and I think you summarize it well, but the last thing we want is to get people uh, scared. Uh, we want people to adopt serverless. I definitely think that um, you know serverless is like what people imagine the cloud to be, uh, which right. is why I, I, I love serverless. I would never think about using today and that would be my first choice for almost anything I build. Um, there are just security things that you have to keep in mind. And there are some nuances uh, that you have to keep in mind, which is what why we published that document and why we do those presentations and conferences. But but don't be scared. I think we uh, that's the one thing that we want people to do is to adopt more and more serverless. Absolutely. All right. If people want to find you on Twitter. Oh, uh, at Ori, O-R-Y, Segal, S-E-G-A-L. Um, or just look for Mr. Serverless Security. I'm just kidding. Uh, 
that's gonna be that's gonna be your new title uh awesome all right i will get all that into the show notes thanks again ori thank you thank you very much for having me it was awesome And that's this week's serverless chat. I want to give a huge thank you to Ori Sagel for being my guest this week. If you want to check out the show notes and a full transcript of this episode, you can find them at serverlesschats.com slash 24. For more serverless chats, be sure you subscribe and rate the show in iTunes, Stitcher, or any of your favorite podcast apps. You can also connect with me on Twitter at Jeremy underscore daily. And if you're interested in serverless and want to discover all the great new articles, use cases, and latest innovations from the serverless community, make sure you subscribe to the Off by None newsletter at offbynone.io. Thank you so much for joining me, and I look forward to chatting with all of you again next week. <laughs>